Hello, everybody. Welcome back to On the Left, where we talk about what it's like to be a human being in the 21st century on the left. Today, we are talking to Jordan, aka Googly Eyes, friend of mine who uh, I know through graduate school, and we go, I guess, pretty far back now. What, like 10 years? Uh, just about. Okay, cool, cool, cool. A decent, solid decade. So we'll start out with uh, you introducing yourself, Jordan. Who are you? What do you do? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my name is Jordan Scavo. Uh, I met Robin at grad school at UC Davis. I went to grad school in 2010. I studied urban and environmental history. Uh, my PhD dissertation focused on the rise and fall of solar in the 70s and 80s during the energy crisis. Um, and explored this moment in which it seemed that solar was going to take on a much greater significance for how we powered our society. And it didn't. It took decades to get to where we are now, where we expected to be then. Uh, so the dissertation looked at the reasons why it took us so much longer to realize the potential of solar as a as a mass form of uh, energy production. Since then, I got a job at the Energy Commission uh, in 2015, and I've worked to regulate shit. And <laughs> uh, you're you're one of the uh, the evil regulators, right? That's repressing all our freedoms. Yeah, I mean, most of what I do is just direct job destruction, but... Oh, most oh, excellent. Yeah, once in a yeah. while I engage in... Uh, as, as a leftist, I've often, I've often wanted to have one of those nice job destruction positions. I've heard there's a place you can go and they give you like a big kind of like hammer and you just smash them in a yard all day. It sounds pretty fun. Yeah, uh, that's good, except that's actually a job. So you want to get rid of that too. I guess you'd be the last job. Yeah, Smash well, you know, if you just need to terminate yourself. If teaching falls through, I can just smash jobs for a living. It sounds really satisfying. Uh, real quick question, because I, I see you have what looks like a nice beverage there. What are you drinking? Whiskey. Excellent. What type? I figured whiskey. Uh, bullet rye. Okay, it's good standby. Respect. I have, I have a blue, blue star, North Coast. Cool. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm a woman. So you know how women like wheat beer. We're really into wheat beer because it's gentle and nice and it's just an essential part of our nature. Oh yeah. I'll have to add uh, that arrow to my quiver. What's the, sorry? I'll have to add that arrow to my quiver. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, also I have also heard like that blue beer. rye is, uh, is for tools. So, but I'm sure that <laughs> doesn't mean you. I'm sure it doesn't. Um, okay. Uh, enough of that nonsense. Uh, let's get right into uh, why you're here, which is to tell us about your journey, your political journey. And so we'll start with where you are now and then work our way uh, from the beginning. How would you at this moment summarize your politics? And you can describe that however you want. You don't need an official title, but how would you understand it? Mm. Uh, 
I don't know. I guess just like, <laughs> fine right now. Um, I I don't know. I still agree with a lot of like the principles of Marxism. Okay. Um, I think mostly I just don't have a lot of hope for revolutionary politics right now. So jaded leftist. Is that jaded leftist. That is absolutely a thing. Hashtag jaded leftists. All right. So how did we begin this journey to jaded leftists? When did you first remember having thoughts or opinions on politics? What's your earliest memories of something that we can call political consciousness? Doesn't have to be sophisticated political consciousness. Believe me, my story on this is really sad. But <laughs> what would you say? Um, I don't know. It, it was slow and subconscious, I guess. I grew up pretty poor. Well, part of my childhood was poor. After my parents got divorced, um, money became tighter. And as my dad's life kind of spiraled out of control, he started paying less and less child support and then stopped paying it altogether. And my mom had been out of the workforce for a long time. They got divorced when I was in eighth grade. And even when she had been in the workforce, she didn't have any vocational skills. Like she worked at a bank, I think when she was younger and like, I don't know, a uh, waitress or something. Like, just kind of rudimentary, low-level jobs. So, so how she, old was she when she got married and had children? I don't know. Around 30, I think. Okay. Um, she was born in 53, and I was born in 82, so 29. Okay. Uh, so when they got divorced, she didn't have a good like route into making a living. Uh, and she was also depressed, I think. she I don't think she's really sorted through the, kind of like her headspace at that time. That's, she's not a very self-reflective person. So I don't know whether she would frame it that way. But to me, she seems, looking back, she seemed depressed. Uh, so we just didn't have a lot of money. And, um, you know, poverty can make you spend a lot of time and energy ruminating on the state you're in. Right. Um, and also a lot of energy trying to rationalize it or to mask it from your peers. And in high school, that's like a particularly vulnerable time to deal with that, I think. Uh, but I was, I mean, I came from a pretty conservative household. My dad was raised in Arkansas. Um, and, you know, he's a, he became a lot worse, but he was like just kind of this dyed in the wool, kind of like rural conservative type, like to hunt, like to fish, like to have the government the hell out of his business so he could do what he wants, like to drive drunk and felt like that was the kind of thing that if you lived in town long enough, you could like negotiate with cops about whether or not you really needed a ticket for getting caught driving drunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That worldview seems so weird to me, but that's where it came from. Right. And uh, I was also 
an Air Force brat. So grew up with like these notions of like patriotism and nationalism pretty heavily embedded in how I saw the world. And my mom was Mormon. Um, so I had like a couple of different layers of conservatism that I guess served as like the foundation for my budding political philosophy, but we didn't really talk politics in the house. I remember certain events like the Oklahoma city bombing. And that was, I remember like the news coverage um, and the event itself, but the way we talked about it at home was like utterly bereft of any context, mm -hmm. any political context. It was just a bad guy. Who a bad guy did a bad thing. Yeah. Cause he hates America, hates the government, but like what his actual problems were, I didn't know. It was just right. crazy. Yeah. I, I didn't either. I mean, I, I vaguely remember it happening. I was younger than you. Yeah. I was younger than you by a few years. So, um, even at the, I, I think I didn't really start paying attention to it till several years later when people would mention it again. At the time it actually happened, I think I was just too young to be on my radar. So it's an interesting mix of sort of formative experiences, um, both the experience of being poor, but also being surrounded by these conservative modes of thinking. So when, when in your understanding did you kind of start to connect dots or think of it in about in a more explicitly political form? So that uh, kind of like conservative background shaped how I viewed our circumstances after my folks got divorced. Um, I just felt like subsumed with shame. Uh, we were using food stamps and on other like governmental aid programs. I remember feeling just like utter humiliation and, and shame at the idea that we needed to use these kind of things. That sucks. It, made me, it made me really detest going anywhere with my mom because I knew that she was going to be using food stamps and I just didn't want to be around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also kind of like resented her for not just figuring it, figuring it out, get a job, go make your own money and like pull us out of this like predicament we're in. Right. And she did try sometimes. Like I remember she had a job. She got a job at the hostess bakery, a company that makes like ding dongs and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, Snowballs. Did, you know, as like a teenager, my favorite. Kind of intriguing. Like, <laughs> are you gonna bring home free samples every day? Precipitate to the rest of the kids. <laughs> but she made so little at that job that mm -hmm. it was going to kick her off of the government aid programs. Um, so she decided to stop working there. She couldn't get enough hours to make it worth her while. She didn't feel. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. You often hear this talking point or this complaint from people who um, are conservatively minded that, oh, you know, people would rather be on welfare than be working a job, so you're paying them not to work. And what's funny is that insofar as there's some silver lining of truth to that, the problem isn't the welfare, the problem is how pitiful they're paid. 
for work that takes them away from home for way too long and drains too much of their energy. The solution is not to kick everybody off welfare. It's to make welfare far more substantial so people aren't suffering on it if they can't work and to make freaking jobs pay decently so that even somebody like your mom who through no fault of her own you know she was thought she was going to be a mother she became a mother didn't have skills to be in fucking silicon valley or whatever can still provide for her family and take care of her children um with a job that that wouldn't require her to be gone all day and pay her like shit for being so so yeah sorry it's just uh yeah it's i get it yeah, <laughs> I think like those dots started to connect as I got older. Um, but it like, as I said before, it, it wasn't something that was happening on any conscious level for me. As a kid, it just felt like oppressive shame. Um, mm. And you like, right? Spend a couple of years doing Christmas on welfare, and it it's a strange feeling. Because it's these programs like Toys for Tots are supposed like they're they're very well intentioned, and I wouldn't ever want them to go away. But like so, sometimes, well intentioned pity like can f have a pretty bitter taste to it. Uh, so I, I just remember feeling like absolutely crummy. Mm. Um, that's such a quaint word. That's probably how you felt as a kid, specifically. Crummy. <laughs> yeah, I just remember getting like these crappy, like yeah. gifts where some person's trying to randomly decide who a stranger they've never met, what kind of a toy they would like. Right. And then they're gonna show up in your house and then they're gonna like be really generous and kind and then they're gonna disappear and you're never gonna see them for the rest of your life. Oh no, it was just shit they left on the doorstep. Oh, that would have been that would have been I think more humiliating if it would have been people actually like handing me shit. But it's funny because uh, my high school, or I guess it's really it was it was my district or my county I don't know organized something similar. But they had the high school kids participate in it if they wanted to, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but my memory from seeing like video and photographs of it because they were trying to recruit us in the leadership class for it was very much that a bunch of people showed up at your house with presents and like walked in and handed them to the kids. So um, that was my impression of how that worked. So like, or I guess it could be different everywhere, but I, point being, like you said, that it, if you pass a certain age, I think it's going to be really hard. Right? Like if it's really young kids, maybe they, they, they're like, whatever you have presents, give it to me. I'm great. But our society is so good at instilling that sense of shame and even at an early age, I suppose you felt it pretty young or was it one wasn't too older? Well, it didn't really start until my folks got divorced. So like eighth grade and later, and I didn't really even mind the poverty itself. I think my mom did a really admirable job of stretching the 16 or hundred or whatever the, the child support was um mm -hmm. i sometimes look back and uh you know feel a lot of like pride that she did her best to not make us feel as poor as we were mm -hmm. um so i didn't really mind the material want as much as it just like how it made me feel mm -hmm. um i for years i would 
go to great lengths to ensure that my friends never had to ride in my mom's fucking like Toyota 80s panel van that had no windows and no seats. Mm. It was just like the idea of my friends seeing my mom's rape van like mortified me. And it was really stressful at times to like come up with excuses for why my mom was like never available to do rides or anything like that. Right. Um, that kind of shit just weighs you down. Uh, so again, it wasn't anything that happened, I think on a conscious level, but it was sort of this emotional or psychological annealing where somehow the shame fell away. And what I was left with was indignation. Felt like anger that there wasn't a way out of this, mm-hmm. at least for a, a kid. Right. And that this didn't feel like it was an accident. This is the way the system is supposed to work. Right. And part of that, I think I can just somewhat attribute to like learning more, taking history classes in high school, I think opened my horizons. And I was at least, um, I had some kind of like surface awareness of concepts like socialism. Right. Um, and so while I, in high school, I didn't do anything to learn more about it. I, I was familiar with like the concept of socialism and like the, the premise behind it, this idea that like, it's, it should be about like to each according to their needs from each according to their ability or something like that. Yeah, I probably, I probably didn't even get that far until college, but definitely I think, I mean, it's ironic because, because of the cold war, which was kind of still a thing in, in the American imagination when we're growing up right now, it's like the kids are like the cold war. What was that? Was it like a really bad time of, you know, lots of snow or whatever, but um, (laughs) it's war combined with the, (laughs) <laughs> the uh, climate change, the coldness, but um, but because of the Cold War, you had this this awareness of socialism, even if it was came wrapped to you as something evil, right? But it was even at a young age, it's like, oh yeah, that's some something that some people think how society should be organized. Um, and so how about how about being raised Mormon? Did that intersect in any weird ways, or uh, did? that encounter, right, ultimately lead to any any change? Um, in, it did in a bunch of ways, and they don't really coalesce in any kind of like a coherent message there. The Mormon Church was really big on uh, charity. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, as a kid would spend time doing these youth activities, which some of them are just fun things to do, but other, other things were like rooted in this idea of service. Um, and was, and was that of comfort to your mother? Was it helpful for her? That I was going out and helping people? No, oh, no, no, no. Like, like the, the, the Mormon community, was that part of what kind of helped her scrape by either materially speaking or just emotionally and spiritually, like having this community that has at least this idea that you're supposed to take care of each other. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, we we could talk about that a bit later. But mm-hmm. 
people in our church ward helped fund me to go on a mission. Um, like they're very good about pulling together. Mormons actually are very good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nuts. <laughs> um, they're just nuts. Yeah. So where was I going with that? So I, I uh, asked you, right, kind of. Oh, the so, uh, of the right. Yeah. Service. So the church had a um, fruit farm that I think grew pears and apples and I forget what else. Kind of out in the rural Antelope Valley, outside of the town I lived in, in Southern California. So we would periodically go out there to harvest um, from that farm and box up the fruit that would go to communities in need. So I like had this sense of like contribution to people in need that like, that's the way society should function is that people in need should be helped, should be provided aid. Right. Um, so that you didn't mean- like really gel with like an anti-communist like foundational principle that I you kind of like are instilled with. Right. I mean um, that especially growing up on an air force base from what you're telling me, it, it, you know, it doesn't sound like that would have any correlation to reality for you, right. Of communism or socialism being a threat that was materialized in any form around you. Right. But want was and need was. Yeah. And this idea of like, uh, social production to aid everyone to like using a broader pool of people's workforce and skills and means to help people in need. Um, but the Mormon church like impacted my thoughts on other ways. I, I don't ever remember a feeling hostility towards homosexuality, mm-hmm. uh, but the Mormon church is strongly against it. So it, even though I, I don't remember feeling like any animus um, towards gay people, like I definitely felt comfortable just making like casual gay jokes. Right. Um, which I think is like probably a pretty normal experience for a teenager, teenage boy in the nineties. It was pretty much Absolutely. just homo this and homo that every, every Yeah. Word. Yeah. Um, um, but when the Mormon church like rolled out hard against uh, prop eight in 2000, whatever that was, three or four. Uh, even by then, I, I was like livid that the church was doing it and that my mom was responsive to direction from the church and was kind of parroting their views because she had been so apolitical my entire life. Interesting. Um, so this was the first time you saw her sort of activated by a political cause and it was for this. Yeah. Yeah, that must have been hard and disorienting. It was disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's okay. Yeah, that's around 2003, 2004. So when did this kind of start to cohere, maybe in a more clear way or in a, in a, in a sense of beyond just understanding that socialism was a thing that was out there? Uh, when did you start to kind of uh, seek out, right, more specific answers to these these questions? Um, I think I, I picked up just a better knowledge base uh, by going to college. Yeah. Um, I kind of went off and on to community college for several years and then um, 
eventually got serious and like picked a focus and wrapped up there and, and went to Cal State Northridge and changed majors to history. I took a, just like every course that sounded cool to me. I took a course on, um, I don't know what it was titled, but it was basically like Bolshevik Russia, um, among other things. I, I felt like I had like a, at that point I had a clear understanding of what Marxism was from an outsider perspective. I didn't, I hadn't like read Das Kapital or anything. But I, uh -huh. I haven't. I, like the, the I tried once and failed miserably. <laughs> that reading group that Iran organized, that's the first time I actually tried to read Das Kapital and I think I got to page 18 and I was like, fuck it. <laughs> Anyways. He's brilliant and can, he can capture like a, uh, a sentiment really, really well. He's capable of very like pithy and meaningful observations. Yeah, but definitely. It's just very dense. Yeah. Right? Like, what the hell? Like, yeah, compared I, to Engels, like Engels, I thought was a far better writer over, overall than Marx. That's um, what I've heard over and over again. So I think I should just read some Engels maybe instead of, of getting my Marx filtered through Marxist thinkers. If I want to go straight to the source, I'll just go to Engels. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't need to read like 800 pages to get the Karl Marx's tenets of Marxism. Right, and absolutely. A distilled version is preferable, I think. It's preferable and it's also sufficient and 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 more immediately compelling, right? Like you can you can get Marxism through history classes, I think is an excellent way to do it. And have these very clear and compelling illustrations of what it means in practice. Cause I haven't, obviously I've only read the first handful of pages of Das Kapital, but my experience was that I know that I actually understand the dynamics he's talking about, but when it's prevented presented in such abstract technical terms, I lose grasp of anything solid, um, which I think is so important. It's hard to read a book that has mathematical expressions in it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> especially especially if, if you're like me and you suck at math and so you're like totally lost yeah yeah unless you're heavily engaged in like the philosophy side of marxism i don't think you really need to read. yeah exactly i mean so for some people that's their that's their thing right they actually love to think about uh what is it like mc C equals m and money commodities blah 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 but um in abstract but for for others, you know, like me, uh, I, I wanted a little bit more connected to the ground. So, however, so you get exposed in college, you're taking some history classes, uh, your interest in history is growing. Um, how did you end up learning more about Marxism? Um, it's not like you hung out with a group of them or anything, is it? No. I... <laughs> uh, not at all. And my existing friends were, like, pretty weirded out when I had, like, a pretty abrupt change in um, interests. Mm. I don't know. I guess... Or, I, was I it abrupt or did it seem abrupt then? It was abrupt. It was, like, a okay, conscious but... decision on my point to decide that I want to explore Marxism and engage okay. with it like theory and praxis. 
Um, right. I don't know. I guess I just hit a moment where things didn't feel like enough anymore in life. That like I felt like I was missing something, hmm. and I wasn't sure what, but it was like affecting everything else. It was making me be a bad partner to Chelsea, and just like generally unhappy in life, resentful of work, felt aimless in school. And I felt that what was missing was, uh, I guess, some like engagement in political activism, mm -hmm. like some way to try and fix things. So I just decided to like get into Marxism DIY style. I bought some books. I bought Das Kapital. <laughs> nice. I Googled some socialist group and I didn't even like do my homework and pick the one that would have lined up best for me. I just picked the one that I think I found first in LA, which was the party for socialism and liberation. And they're kind of like this. There were some awesome people there. I, mm -hmm. I made some good friends and learned a lot from those folks. Uh, the PSL is kind of this like apologist, Marxist um, group. They do a lot of good work. They do, they're like central to, or they were central to like the anti-war movement in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, they did a lot of organizing around healthcare issues and labor issues. Um, and they were like interested in getting Marxists embedded in these kinds of industries so that we can have more of a voice in there. Right. Uh, I, by, I, just to clarify by apologist, do you mean Soviet apologist? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, that's, that was like one of my first indications that something that's weird is that like they were very uncomfortable, um, really like critically interrogating Stalin's actions right like kind of the blanket response is like you know there were excesses but communism was embattled especially during that period by like global capitalist forces and so these like excesses that we are witnessing are like within the context of this oppressive global regime that's trying to, what do they call it? Like strangle the baby in the cradle. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we like probably should give Stalin a pass. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's a tough Maybe it would have been way less insane if, if the capitalists hadn't been after him, but like that always didn't strike me as something that seemed like a fair assessment and kind of insane. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we're not going to be critical about what happened there, how do we avoid that happening again? Right. Mm -hmm. We really need to draw some lines around what's the kind of Marxist behavior we want to see and what's the kind <laughs> of right. terrifying. Right. I mean, it's kind of a – it's funny because I think talking about the means don't justify the ends is an overused cliche that – like liberals, for example, rely on all the time to do this ridiculously kind of armchair moralizing. But insofar as cliches usually have some useful grain of truth in them, I think that there's a certain place where as a leftist, if you're in it for the sake of justice, human justice and flourishing, you have to draw a line. Like, yeah, 
the Soviet Union was embattled. And yes, you know, the United States was busy being like the cop of the capitalist world and committing all sorts of atrocities in the world elsewhere also. But you just don't starve millions of people to death and you don't start killing off old revolutionaries. You just don't do that. Because without that, it's just kind of becomes some bizarro nihilism world where it the means have so taken over that the end isn't even there anymore. But right. Anyways. That's, I think the, the biggest issue to me is that there's not even an end to need justification for the end is bad. Also the right. Stalin, Stalin and Mao in some ways did more to harm the cause of socialism than almost any other figure in history. Oh Both yeah. Talking absolutely. about like Khrushchev the monster. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> nobody does talk about Khrushchev the monster, and not that Khrushchev was great, but he was, you know, ambiguous enough. But but Stalin is not. Uh, yeah, I don't think he's a very ambiguous fellow. Yeah, he's the straw man that people like point to him and him and Mao when they're trying to like draw these equivalencies between, um, like far left and far right. Right. Right, absolutely. And all of a sudden we get somewhere in mainstream discourse where Trump and Bernie are comparable in some incredibly facetious way. Yeah. yeah. And there's uh, actual voters deciding between the two because like they both seem like pretty good options. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot and then you actually have the phenomenon and the Trump Bernie voter, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So all right, so you so you're I think that's really an inspiring story. I think that it's pretty exceptional actually that people notice this sort of blank spot in their knowledge or their direction in life and so actively and uh, fully just seek to correct it to the point where you just show up to, you know, you start working with this group of, of Marxists. Um, a lot of people say they'll do stuff like that. You know, uh, they'll, they'll make the list the New Year's resolutions and they'll, they'll go to, whatever, you know, workshop or, or, or new project they have planned for a week or two, but to actually do so and to do so on a subject that is so fundamental and big and serious. Um, I just haven't heard a lot of stories like it. So kudos to that. Yeah. I mean, so, I think it was like probably maybe my first like depressive episode. That I <laughs> what, like before or during? Before. Before, right. Like okay. This embrace of like this exploration of Marxism, I think was like me trying to fill this like hole in my heart that I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew something was. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. So how does that experience end up running its course? Now um, I'm going to do a little spoiler here for the audience, just because uh, I don't know if I could uh, precisely ask the right question to, to drag this out of you, but I think it's so funny. Um, they thought you were the cops at first, right? <laughs> That's what they told you. They, they, they told me later. Yeah, they were weirded out by me because I just yeah. showed up, I guess, out of the blue. I would read I'm not sure how. how That's what I was thinking. It's so weird. It's not something a lot of young white men do. Like, I'm feeling blue. I'm going to go find out about Marxism. <laughs> and I just shaved my hair off. Oh, no. So what were you like thinking? Ah. I don't know. My hair is really long and like it felt like it was, uh, it was time like a, to lot go. Of, a lot of drama wrapped up in those roots. <laughs> oh man. Pull it. Yeah. So they didn't, they didn't tell me at the time, but 
I, yeah, I went through like a couple of interviews with them and they always seemed like partnering me up with one of like the more like senior folks within like their little branch organization. Um, and they were very kind to me. Uh-huh. Like at the time I thought it was just this kind of like mentorship arrangement. And maybe it was mm-hmm. at least partly, but I, I got to hang out with um, some folks who were really knowledgeable and, and really like Im- embedded in this organization and get, and engaged in the types of activism they conducted. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they later explained to me that they thought I was like an undercover cop or something because I was just this guy who showed up out of nowhere that I guess they, I don't know how they got other recruits, I guess just from like, yeah, well, I think contact through different organizations they work with, but I was just a like lone wolf who showed up with a copy of Das Kapital, which like, <laughs> also probably, like, this is what you guys read, right? Okay. So that's like standard issue FBI, like, <laughs> Covers, they give you a big ass copy of Dust Copy Tall. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll blend right in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, but this goes to like how I think it's a pretty unusual story that you have because most of their other recruits probably came from people who were already involved in other causes, right? Like somebody shows up to the meeting for the first time, but so and so knows so and so who knows them from the anti uh, or, you know, the pro gay rights actions that happened a year back or two, right? Like usually they're already somewhere in that political activist circle. And so they have some connections to some form of leftism or left liberalism that people can identify. But you were just like, yeah, out of nowhere, just plop. That makes sense. I guess like looking back on like the types of activism we engaged in on campus at Davis and like, Mm -hmm. Generally, people knew of one another when there's all these different um, forces that are in alignment, but they're different groups and they've got different aims. When they would come together, you like kind of knew who who is who. Like, exactly. Had an idea of this broader social constellation. Yeah, usually. Yeah, so I guess in that context, it was very strange. I just showed up. Alone, too, right? Usually people show up connected some way to somebody else, right? Um but you were yeah. just this, lo- like you said, a lone wolf. So uh, I'm not surprised they were suspicious, but I'm very glad that they took, you know, were uh, open-minded enough to be kind to you, and and eventually realize you were uh, a a genuine searcher for truth. So this is in is this after undergrad? Yeah, this was like well, um, I think I. Had, I think this is right before I finished my undergrad degree. This was in 2007, and I s- started a master's program in 2008. Okay. And where was that? Also at, at Also Northridge. at Northridge. Okay. So after that experience with the uh, – what, what's the PSL? Party for Socialism and Liberation. Yeah. Um, in the L.A. area. Um, was there, what, what, what's the next chapter in the story? Was there, um, time, place, or an event, uh, that, uh, kind of molded or shaped or changed your politics, um, following from there? Or do you feel like you're basically in the same place or where, where do we go next? 
Um, well, I guess that brings me to Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> cool. Why does it always go back to that fucking guy? <laughs> Pray tell him. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I actually, I did meet Mark Ruffalo though. Uh, with my work for PSL, I um, spoke at a this anti-war event that we organized, and so did he. So I like got to talk to him a little bit, which was like really strange. But I kind of thought that was solid because he knew he was hanging out with socialists, mm-hmm. um, and he wasn't weirded out by that, even though he was like this celebrity who I didn't really know anything about. Right. Uh, so I was kind of had, like a soft spot for. From after that, uh, so I, I worked with PSL for a couple of years, um, doing activism for healthcare issues, for cops off campus issues, or for like military recruiters off campus issues, uh, immigration protection stuff, and anti war stuff was huge at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and eventually, I felt like I just kind of, kind of grown apart from that organization. And I guess there was a few factors to it. One is I, I grew disillusioned with how dogmatic the group was. Like shit like apologizing for Stalin. Um I, I remember talking to the guy I had who had like initially been my gatekeeper, I guess, to mm-hmm. get into the PSL. <laughs> uh, he turned out to be like a really nice guy that I liked and respected. Mm-hmm. Um I remember talking to him about the Stalinist purges. And I was like, how do you, cause at least in the PSL. And I think in these more dogmatic Marxist circles in general, they talk about like this vague notion of when the revolution comes. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's always this thing on the horizon. And he's like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, the purges, like that kind of thing. We don't have to worry about it. Like we'll deal with that stuff when the revolution comes. <laughs> okay. I'm like, That's not very satisfying. Like, yeah, I don't want to get put to death by one of right. you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, can can we make plans now so I know how to not get killed? Cool, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, stuff like that just felt increasingly like sticking points to me that I didn't want to just go along with. But I also had like very close up um, experience with, and we've talked about this before, like the fragmentation on the left mm-hmm. and how that fractiousness can be it's like utterly unproductive yep can be really toxic so, like a lot of not a lot but a, a fair part of what these marxists would do is go just argue with other marxists at big events so, so you're at a rally you would find spartacists or maoists or something and just go argue with them and it was just, it seemed the idiotic traps. to me. The trots. Yeah. Yeah. Traps. The Spartans were the most, actually, I don't know the Maoists were. I just like saying the word trots, just so anyone knows. I, I have nothing against that Marxist faction more than any other. Uh, I just like the word trots. I, uh, Trotsky so, is fucking appealing. He's, he's a very <laughs> yeah. romantic figure. I remember. I, like, I told you, I get it. I, I understood like, why, ah. I understand why Frida Kahlo wanted to hit that. I get it. I wish I could have been that big of a jerk to just say, fuck you all, nothing's good enough. It's Trotsky or nothing. <laughs> it's Trotsky or bust. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that guy had the fucking hipster look down a hundred years early. Man, he was like the original. Um, and it's like a, a I think a, a safe position for leftists to take to just say like, oh yeah, we're on the side of the good. guy that Stalin killed, right? Yeah, it is very, it is very. Um, yet you don't kind of have to engage with those questions of what what happened in the Soviet Union because you're for the guy who who was kicked out early on. Totally. Uh, yeah, that to everything though. Like you can, your intellectual purity can be intact because you don't need to make any compromises if you just condemn every socialist venture that's ever taken place in the world throughout history. Right. And inadequate. Right. And you could just say, well, we should have done it how, how Trotsky would have done it. And, yeah. and that's it. Insufficiently geared towards like global revolution. Yeah. It's like uh, what's like, it's in, unfalsifiable. That's, that's always like the problem if your theory is unfalsifiable. Right. Yeah. Um, so before we leave that subject though, I want to ask you if you have any, thoughts about why it is that the left fractures so much because it's funny that it's something that the left talks about a ton it's we're very self-aware of it right that we're prone to factional politics we're we're prone to um you know uh attacking each other you know eating our babies if to uh to you know steal that famous quote about the french revolution i have my own ideas on why but what do you what do you think why, why do we suck at that? Just putting aside our smaller differences. On the face of it, I think it's at least partly because leftism is grounded in intellectualism, mm. whereas hard rightism is grounded in emotional drives. Mm, okay. So it's much easier to both recognize the differences and then the stakes in terms of a precise position are increased, I guess. Is that? I don't know. Makes sense. I have no idea what the fuck you just said, Robin. Uh, go on. Like the, at least like the left is about engaging in ideas. Um, for the most part, leftists like are about some kind of an idea mm -hmm. and it's, it, it's predicated like on this concept that like you have this clear window into how the world works. Um, you've attained this ability to like understand these social mechanisms. That's not the kind of thing that happens on the right. The right is driven by personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and emotion. And that tends to like encourage a coalescing around a mm -hmm. person, like a personality mm -hmm. cult. That happens, I think, far less often on the left. The left, they're brought people are brought together by ideas, but they're all a little bit different. So like it's mm -hmm. easy to like get into it and see the differences. And I also think it, part of it is like um also driven by one, this desire for intellectual purity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and also kind of this cowardice it's hard to solve problems mm -hmm. like it's hard to be part of the fix for something and it's much easier to just describe what's wrong without trying to fix it mm -hmm. you also like don't take any risk that way you can just call out the problems without 
being responsible for trying to figure out how to correct it. Mm -hmm. uh, so at least in my experience, I've seen a lot of um, moments where folks just kind of denigrate this idea of engaging in like actual mainstream politics mm -hmm. to try and change things. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you, I've encountered it in the several different um, contexts, I guess. The same kind of thing played out somewhat in the union where mm -hmm. it's like a lot easier to throw stones than to try and build the house. Right, absolutely. Particularly when, particularly when the stone throwing is often sort of def defensive, not that there's an actual threat that they're throwing stones at, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a defense for that sense of self, right? That if you're on the left, it's probably going to be pretty important to you, right? I think that's another reason in, in the right, you can have a really big tent and I'm just kind of spitballing here. So stop me if I'm starting to make no sense, but on the right, you kind of have this big tent where you don't have to put your whole soul in it on the line, they'll welcome you in and you can participate in it um, with pretty low, yeah, low risk and low investment. But on the left, to really get in it, you got to really get in it usually. And then the stakes on a psychological level of being wrong or being right are higher. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't so, think on the right there are very many stakes in terms of like, yeah. at least in terms of like yeah. intellectual labor. Right, right, exactly. Left, generally, part of your experience with an exposure to leftism is like, read this or read that. Right. On the right, I don't really think you're being suggested to read books. You're being sent memes. You're it's being sent memes or you're, or you're being sent memes in the form of books. Like, <laughs> I remember several of those type books around the house growing up. Uh, for example, there was one called Bias, and it was all about how the media was, you know, infected and totally corrupted by liberal bias. And uh, it basically, they're not real books. It, it was a collection of memes, more or less, right? It was a collection of, look at this clever, you know, clever line. Look at that clever line. And and that was the extent of it. So, yeah, absolutely. You're not really asked to, to engage on a level that is going to challenge you in any shape or form. On the other hand, on the left, you are, and then there, there just seems a lot more uh, at stake psychologically um, for, for people's individual egos, which are always going to exist, right? Even on the left, that's the thing. The left uh, is united loosely by a shared vision of justice, but people are just as much people as anywhere else, right? Um, we have absolutely our fair share, the, the same proportion of you know, assholes, uh, people who are manipulative, people who are in it for the wrong reasons. There's just, there's nothing special about the left in that regard. Um, okay, so when moving into grad school, do you feel like there's anything you want to talk about in there that stands out to you, uh, that impacted you or is important to your conception of your politics today? Or uh, can we just wrap it up here, call it quits? <laughs> Um, mostly, yeah. I think grad school felt at least like the activism side of grad school uh, was pretty rewarding for me because I came into it pretty burnt out on Marxism and on revolutionary uh, 
socialist activism. And coming here and finding a bunch of really cool, like-minded people that didn't have a this kind of unifying dogma that brought them together was pretty eye-opening and rewarding for me. I've made friends on like a broader political spectrum of, I don't know if I call it spectrum, but just like the weird left amorphousness of like anarchism and Marxism, right. like other flavors of leftism that uh are all kind of like an operation that kind of thing helped i think make me feel a little less pessimistic about the type of work i'd been doing before i came to grad school i I found it rewarding and i'm grateful i got to have this (laughs) me too all you lovely people absolutely i mean uh eventually at the end of this series one you know, I'll, t- I'll tell my own story, but suffice to say that my experience is very similar. And I was just finding myself fully on the left when I started hanging out with all you guys. And what I what I find very, I will admit, self well, self satisfying, group satisfying, whatever satisfying, is that you're the second person in doing this project, this podcast, who has emphasized that we have we're a group of leftists who are not going to freak out right if you if you take a different or line or if you know you have a substantially different idea about priorities that that are still considered on the left um i find that satisfying just because to the outside world leftists are dogmatic right that's what that's what we are we're dogmatic we're closed-minded um and so uh it's it's nice to be like no we're not <laughs> and, but also to know that, that 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 experience that i had wasn't just in my head right like this isn't dogmatic this isn't closed-minded this isn't indoctrination this is genuinely a group of people talking about why the world's fucked up and and working on that together so that was my experience as well our social empathy comes from the left it's born out of the types of and like analysis and activism that the left performs. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, that, that you see right on a, on a, on a face to face basis. It's just, it's something you can't, you almost can't explain it to somebody, right. They have to experience it. Um, so to go towards our kind of last couple of standard questions here, uh, I think you might, have a more pessimistic answer to this than some other people. And I just want to let you know that you can feel free to let it fly. I, <laughs> I'm not fishing for an optimistic question or answer. I always ask people, do you think there's anything we can do to bring people to the left? Or is it pretty much out of our hands? Like as, as individuals, what the fuck can we do, if anything? Uh, yeah, we can do something. Just <laughs> okay, all right, cool, cool. You're doing it. Teaching is a big way of engaging, um, especially young uh, minds are less fixed. Yes, every time uh, I'm feeling really fucking down about being having having a life that's not really uh, being useful to anyone, I I am reminded of that right, by Iran, but I also remind myself, and I usually find that pretty compelling. <laughs> I'm not on fucking Wall Street. I had a professor in undergrad that I um, really liked. 
really respected. And he was an adjunct, taught at three different schools in LA, which fucking sucks. That means he was driving all the time. Super fucking sucks. And how much and gas? Really you know? barely making ends meet. Yeah. Um, but that guy was a Marxist. And he he didn't push it hard, mm-hmm. but he like would throw in these things. Right. He didn't I, hide it. The uh, thing that stuck with me most from him was that very often quoted line from Marx about how uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. So that professor said that line is very commonly misquoted and misinterpreted. Right. Uh, in context, it's actually very like sad. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not about like this conspiracy that religion's controlling people. It's that the world doesn't make any fucking sense. Right. And that religion is a way to try and make sense of a world that doesn't. Right. Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Um, because they couldn't afford real opium. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. He goes on to say that it's the heart in a heartless world and the soul in a soulless world. Right. It's like this rail to hold on to for people who feel buffeted by these chaotic winds of uh, capitalism and exploitation. Right. I often actually think of that quote when I see something on social media or in some other format that, you know, my skeptical atheist self finds really grating or annoying, um, you know, whether it's, you know, homeopathy or, or whatever. I often, or, or positive thinking, kind of the, the, the culture of positive thinking, right? I often remind myself that there's not a lot of people uh, who, even if you are privileged in one or multiple ways, uh, who, who haven't suffered enough or don't suffer enough just by virtue of being human, um, that can just do away completely with with belief in any kind of moral order to the universe, whether it's a Christian God or a new age universe force of love or, or the justice of the fucking marketplace, right? This idea that that the marketplace justly sorts out human beings and their fates to be able to do that, to go without that is actually a privilege. That's what I, that's what I tell myself to stop myself from wasting my energy on those kind of things because I feel like I'm acting from a position of privilege if I am going to actually spend any time getting upset or correcting people or arguing with people on that for precisely that quote, that Marx quote that captures why, right? That yeah. what the fuck else do a lot of people have, right? And as long as it's not causing active immediate harm, I just remind myself that there's plenty of other shit to get angry about, right, than that. And it should make you angry. Like it, people are willing to believe in a magical guy who lives in the sky and does supernatural things to, or who can do supernatural things to make your life better. And who's watching you to try and like, make sure that there's going to be a sense to this world and to your life. That's what people believe instead of like facing this reality that the whole world is fucked. Right. That's angry. Like, yeah. That's true. How bad is this world screwed up that like that's a viable alternative to you is just believing in a fairy tale. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um 
I absolutely agree. And then I could also I could also go down that hole of getting angry about it, but you're exactly right. That they didn't create this world that presented that viable option to them, right? And made the other options seem so unviable. Um, oh, and like, so, to like that to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. your question, there are ways that we can like expand the pool of leftists. Yeah. And you're doing one of them, which is just teaching. You don't need to like demand that your students are going to go uh, occupy the administration building. Just <laughs> right. doing good. Um, you know, like pedagogical discourse is meaningful from the perspective of a leftist. I think that the way that whether you're a teacher or whether you're just uh, somebody willing to talk to somebody about politics or you're a mentor in, for somebody in some other capacity, I think that what I always keep in mind is whatever you do, if there's somebody there who's open, curious, and um, able to meet you halfway, that, that there's a chance you might make a difference, right? Because you can't, you're not going to make any converts out of nothing, right? There needs to be a level of interest there. It's like a Christian once told me, I was like, well, if Jesus is real, why doesn't he just come down and announce himself to me and give me a born-again experience? She's like, you have to want it, Robin. And I'm like, well, I'm fucked then. But anyways, she was right. <laughs> if we use that analogy in terms of politics, that they do have to want it somewhat, just like you wanted it enough to go join a group of Marxists in, in LA. Um, but there has to be someone on the other side, right? Saying, yeah, come on over. This is what this is about. And, and being kind and encouraging why, why they do, why they explore that. Um, what is the worst thing about being on the left? Um, your follow-up question is what's the best thing, right? It is. I'm going to answer those in reverse order. Go for it. Best thing about being on the left is that you get to be right. <laughs> I love it. The worst thing about being on the left is that that doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter for shit. I know. That's so true. Oh, God. Um, are you finished? Or you want to elaborate? That's enough, I think. That's enough. Jordan Scavo is a man of few words, but they get to the point and uh, pack a punch. Yes. Uh, no, I just wanted wanted to elaborate that on that latter point that it doesn't matter been thinking about that a lot lately because in episode one we asked jenna what was your recommendation for anything she said the west wing thing i've been listening to it almost every day since and one of the big things that comes out of their analysis of that show and it's ideology if you want to call it that because it's really like an ideology of nothingness but one of the themes is that really compelling arguments smart people and really good arguments are going to win that's what you need and it's total fucking bullshit and it's so at the cornerstone of liberal like writ large right like classical liberalism like liberalism since the enlightenment that would encompass a lot of conservatives now today as well understanding of the world is that if you just fucking are right and you make the argument well and smart people are listened to then that's how society moves forward and the longer i live and the longer i'm a leftist the more i deeply realize that is absolutely not fucking true <laughs> it does not fucking matter <laughs> Ah, I love it. Yep. Um, <laughs> so I can't possibly top that. So we'll just move to our last question. 
if you have uh, a TV show, book, podcast series right now you would like to recommend, again, it doesn't have to be explicitly political. It could be like Say Yes to the Dress. Um, but what would it be? I have a recommendation for this. Most excellent. Uh, you're not going to want to look at it because it's and it's a format that uses animation. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. I'm not the only I, one that's taken these. My recommendation is Al Ewing's The Immortal Hulk comic right. series that has a ton of cool ass sub stories to it. But one of the stories, one of the main plots of this comic run is the Hulk, this like giant, unstoppable, unkillable rage monster, just decides to declare war on disaster capitalism. And like, nice. Starts just destroying infrastructure that's owned by this like Exxon analog in the comic book world. And it's fucking cool. Shit. Now, stuff like that does give me hope, I, I have to say. Because what did shit like that? I know shit like that existed somewhere in some corners when you and I were growing up. It doesn't feel like I feel, it feels like it. There's so much more of it now. Is that just me? Is this because I wasn't paying attention when I was twelve? I don't know. I think things have changed since the fall of the Cold War. That's it's like more of like an acceptable mainstream position to interrogate a broader set of uh, um, like social and political circumstances than maybe we're allowed. 30 years ago. Yeah. This, it's this hard. Comic, it's like an ongoing one that started a year or two ago. It's, it's new. Yeah. But it's hard to think more stuff. That's critical of capitalism in the last decade than we've seen in like the last 60 years. That's what it feels like. Also. And then there's 2008 and, and there's occupy and now there's this pandemic and there's also Trump, which in himself is just an argument for everything being very, very wrong. Um, I often feel like I need to know more older leftists, but they often end up being the, you know, uh, baby boomer white men sort that then explain to me, well, everything. Anyways, <laughs> I'd much you rather. A lot. Sorry, what? You should interview a lot. Uh, off, I would love to. I don't think he'd want to. Do you think he would do this? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is bullshitting for uh for if you another... want an older leftist. Oh my he's, god. He's our that's senior not... leftist in the group. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's not that old. Everyone, he's not that old. So no, that... he's got the oh, seniority. You're... He he does. He does have the he he is he is our old wise man. <laughs> and he's a leftist probably before anyone. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I wish I would love to get him to do this. We'll we'll see if we can do it. But thank you for coming on very, very much. And um I hope you have a nice evening and stay, stay healthy. Yeah. Um, also, I guess let's date this. We're recording this on January the 24th. So a um, couple days after the end of the Trump presidency, which is nice. Very, very nice. But I'm already sick of Biden. So let's go shit on liberals. Yeah. All right. Thank you for uh, being with us, Jordan. And to our listeners out there, um, we love you very much. You're very special.